much. Kia ora koutou, everybody. Hello. Um, we are doing a series this morning called This Must Be Stronger Than That. And this is actually the last talk of the series. We've been doing this for about five weeks now, and today is our last day in this series. And what it's about is it has been based on a book by a, a New York pastor called John Tyson, who uh, he wrote a book called, oh my goodness, I've blanked what the book's called. Rob? Thank you, Beautiful Resistance. Vivek, thank you, buddy. Thank you. Um, uh, a Beautiful Resistance. And in that book, he talks about how we are being formed in our lives by the culture around us, but yet we are actually called to a discipleship life, a life with Jesus, and we are called to having a life formed by Jesus, and yet our culture wants to almost have the bigger say around how we're approaching the things we do. And so he, he concludes that essentially uh, we must get a bit more serious about what it is to be people of discipleship around the things of the kingdom culture rather than the culture of the world around us and not let that form us so much. So we've been looking at the series. Today's our last day. And we've been looking at it through this idea of like something must be stronger than another thing. So we've done compassion must be stronger than indifference, for example. Or we've done love must be stronger than hate. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about another this must be stronger than that. But before I get there... Um, during lockdown number one, we, um, my wife and I, Gab, who you just met before, Gab and I, we have our worst fights in regards to being a married couple when it comes to choosing what movie to watch when there's only like one movie night up available in like three weeks. And we spend an hour and a half fighting about what movie we should watch. Choosing, should we watch this one? Should we watch this one? Anyway, during lockdown number one, we found a really good solution, which I would recommend. The solution was this. We'll simply only watch our way through the genre of Tom Hanks movies. So we just chose Tom Hanks, we start at the start, and we've been watching our way through Tom Hanks's movie discography. Is that the right thing? The, his, his collection of movies. So we've watched everything. And just a couple of nights ago, we were getting near the end of this long list of movies that we've been working our way through with Tom Hanks in them. Um, we haven't watched every movie, by the way, but we've just been working our way through the ones we hadn't seen. And we finally got to this movie that we have been wanting to watch for a while. It's called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Has anyone, has anyone seen that? All right. Well, if you haven't seen that movie, you're in luck. I'm going to show you the trailer right now. So this is the trailer to A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Hello, neighbor. Hey, I'm looking for Fred Rogers in here. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Please, won't you be my neighbor? Hello, neighbor. Mr. Rogers, I'm here to interview you. It is so nice to meet you. You okay? Profiling Mr. Rogers. Lloyd, please don't ruin my childhood. This piece will be for an issue about heroes. Do you consider yourself a hero? We are trying to give the world positive ways of dealing with their feelings. Yeah, like what? Many things you can do. You can play all the lowest keys on a piano at the same time. Um. 
love broken people like me. Sometimes we have to ask for help, and that's okay. I think the best thing we can do is to let people know boom, that each one of them is precious. Wonderful movie. Uh, if you're still a little bit sort of, I don't quite know what the movie's about, Mr. Rogers is a real-life uh, American. Uh, he, was, he was for many decades the uh, maker and uh, lead man in, a, in a, a TV show for children that was aimed at trying to help children healthily process their emotions. How do kids not run away from their emotions or be afraid of emotions, but how do they engage their emotions really, really healthfully? Uh, it's a really stunning TV show and a stunning bit of life's work. And he is regarded as a hero. He's regarded as a hero. As that trailer portrays, you know, he's an everyday hero. Kids all over America have seen him and, uh, and he has helped them. And Lloyd, the character who was also in the trailer there, he is a journalist, a writer for a magazine. And he gets given this job of having to interview Mr. Rogers. But he is actually known as a writer who's quite ruthless. He's actually a quite ruthless writer. He often takes the negative angle when he's writing stories. And so there's this sort of tension here because what's happening is Lloyd's own brokenness is coming out. And when he starts to meet Mr. Rogers, he cannot believe that a person could be this good. And so what happens is in the middle of the movie here, there's this scene. This was actually in the trailer. I just grabbed that in the screenshot. But Mr. Rogers is, is outside, and he is greeting fans and children, and he's just slowly working his way through. He's, this is something you pick up in the movie. He just will not let the opportunity to say hi to someone go. He will not let someone out of his sight when, he has their, when, they, when they catch his attention. He's a very deliberate man. And here he is carefully greeting people outside, and Lloyd is waiting to interview him. And he's like, come on, I need to interview you. And while he's waiting, he actually ends up meeting Mrs. Rogers. And he has a conversation with Mrs. Rogers. So while this is happening outside, this is the dialogue between Lloyd and Mrs. Rogers, Mr. Rogers' wife. Lloyd says this, so how does it feel to be married to a living saint? Mrs. Rogers says, oh, you know, I'm not fond of that term. If you think of him as a saint, then his way of being is unattainable. You know, he works at it all the time. It's a practice. He's not a perfect person. He has a temper. He chooses how, to, how he responds to that anger. And Lloyd says, that must take a lot of effort. Outside, the shot goes again to... Mr. Rogers greeting the children and they continue the conversation. And Mrs. Rogers adds this. Well, yeah, he does things every day that help to ground him. Reads scripture, swims laps, prays for people by name, writes letters, hundreds of them. He's been doing that since I met him. I just love this moment in the movie. There's this sort of sense of you're looking at this man 
who's kind of everything that Lloyd wished he could become. And he's getting the secret behind what made him so. His wife is spilling the beans. Oh, it was actually a bunch of hard work. And it was a bunch of hard work practicing every day to become the man that you see out there. That's Mrs. Rogers and Lloyd having a conversation about Mr. Rogers. And the line I want to draw your attention to this morning was where Mrs. Rogers says, it's a practice. It's a practice. And so today's, this must be stronger than that. We're finishing the series, and I want us to think about this theme of our Christian discipleship. And the theme I want to talk about today is that practice must be stronger than belief. Now, a quick disclaimer, because some of you who have been in church for a while are starting to go, hang on, that, that sentence shouldn't make, make sense. That shouldn't work. Let me just disclaim something here. I'm not talking about the fact that with belief we have salvation. I'm not talking about starting. I'm not talking about the beginning point of life with God, where God mercifully makes space for us if we will just believe and receive his love. I'm not, I'm not starting there. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is what this series has been sitting in, which is that we are called to a Christian discipleship. And as being called to a Christian discipleship, we're called to growth and transformation. And what I'm asking today is, how do we actually grow? How do we transform? How do we actually get this thing so it's progressing and changing? And we must realize that for most people out on the street, if you say the word Christian, what most people are thinking of are oh, those are the people who believe in God. There's a belief. But actually what we realize as we start to dig around in this thing of following Jesus for a while is like, yes, we do believe in God. That's what starts us on the journey. But actually then there's an entire practice that follows that starts to make us the people that we desire to become. So this is not about, this is my disclaimer here, this is not about separating faith and works. That's not what I'm doing today, okay? Do not, do not hear that argument from me. It's not the argument I'm making. What I'm talking about is how do we form a faith that works? How do we form a faith that works? How do we form a faith that actually builds something in transformative into this world? The goal that I want to talk about today is found in Ephesians 4, verses 14 through to 16. This is from the Message Bible. It says this, No prolonged infancies among us, please. We'll not tolerate babes in the woods, small children who are an easy mark for imposters. This is just Paul painting a picture of immaturity. And then he goes on to say this, God wants us to grow up to know the whole truth and to tell it in love, like Christ in everything. We take our lead from Christ, who is the source of everything that we do. He keeps us in step with each other. His very breath and blood flow through us, nourishing us so that we will, and here's the line I want you to pay attention to. If you could remember anything from today, which I know is a hard ask because there's a lot of content going on, but if you could remember one thing, please remember Ephesians 4 verse 16 is the goal of the Christian life. It's this, to grow up healthy in God, robust in love. The goal here is to grow up healthy in God, robust in love. You know, to use the catechism language, to enjoy God forever. You know, we need to be walking out a life with Him, growing up healthy in God, maturing in God, robust in love. I love that word, robust. What a word for this moment in this world. But yet, we have a problem. The problem is, is that that story there has not been the main story that we have been telling. Because actually, what's going on is we actually have a growth problem 
in the presentation of what we do as the gospel. We actually present a gospel which Dallas Willard likens more to the gospel of sin management. It's the gospel where we deal with our sin and we have it dealt with. There's this transaction and then we're good. And we go on living a life where we are still the kings and the lords. And so cultural Christians, a little note here, cultural Christians and remnant disciples. These are some phrases on this slide. Uh, If you have no idea what I'm talking about as I say that, if you've missed the last five weeks, we explained what all of this was right back at the start. So jump on the podcast and have a listen to about five weeks ago and it'll catch you up nicely. Alicia did a really good job of unpacking this. Um, Cultural Christians, what they do is they believe in God. Yep, tick, belief. Um, They receive the offer of the good news. Yep, tick. Went forward for the altar call, prayed the prayer. Good. They adopt some correct belief systems to manage their sin, but they ultimately maintain a life that's lived mainly on their own terms. Going about a life mainly lived, just I'm still the king of the castle. I I come to church maybe every five or six weeks to sort of deal with that nagging conscience thing that I've got going on. I, 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 I pray a couple of prayers. I feel better. I go home. I continue to be the Lord of my domain. But remnant disciples, those who are lasting amongst the cultural pressure we find ourselves in today, those who have a a red-hot fire for Jesus, they grow in God, rewiring their lives. It's not just about receiving something that deals with something and I'm done. It's actually a continual rewiring. They move from just an acknowledgement of their belief to practicing and living a transformative faith. And their lives, Ephesians 4 verse 16, grow up healthy in God, robust in love. Now we have a bit of a problem because the church has been, like I said before, telling of a gospel where the the starting point is the main part of the story. Um, And I think hand on heart, one of the reasons why we do that is because we can get a KPI out of it. We can measure it. We had 12 salvations this week. Tick. You know, and there's a there's a there's a there's harder mahi to be done with growing people. You know, it's actually quite easy to grow a crowd, but actually we're called as a Christian community to be growing as a forming community of our formation in Christ. That's harder work. And Eugene Peterson says this: spiritual birth receives far more attention in the church than growth. Birth is quick, it's easy, it's marked by a specific event. Growth is endless. Oh, man, the wind's coming out of the sails already. It's complex. It's full of fatigue and pain and uncertainty. Growth happens gradually over a long period of time. Henri Nouwen says this, A spiritual life cannot be formed without discipline, practice, and accountability. These are very important uh, pieces of currency in our spiritual lives. Yet actually we've majored on a message about the beginning and we need to recapture the story about how we continue and keep growing. This is the life of the Christian today in the cultural moment we find ourselves in. So how do we grow? If the goal is to Ephesians 4.16, be healthy in God, robust in love. How do we get there? How do we move towards that trajectory? I've used this before, and I I just want to use it again because I think it's so darn helpful. If you've heard me talk about this before, welcome back. We're going to do it again. It's Dallas Willard's idea of how we change. And he says it's three things. Vim, vision, intention, means. Vision, intention, means. So how do we change? Firstly, we need a vision. We need to see a new opportunity of what we could be. We need to see a new reality. We need to see how things could be. That's what vision is, seeing an alternative. 
Okay? But then we need intention. And what intention is that's different to vision is rather than just seeing something, like a revelation of something, we actually have to desire to get to that. We have to desire to become that. We have to desire it. So it's not just about seeing something. It's about do you really want that? Do you really want to get to that? And then lastly is means. And means is how we enact that new reality. It's how we actually put skin on the game. It's how we actually get it so it's lived. And so what I want to do today is I want to take vision, intention, and means. I want to simplify it, which I think it's already incredibly simple. But let me simplify it one click further. I think it could all be summed up in the title of today's talk. I think the first two things are the things of belief, and the last two things are the things of practice. I think we have to move from belief to practice, and we have to walk this beautiful Venn diagram of these two worlds colliding. The reason I've put practice over the last two um, is because we've done a little bit of work in the past here by uh, James K.A. Smith, where he talks about what we do as our practices actually shapes a desire in our hearts. We actually form love by practicing the things that teach us how to be lovers. So when we worship God, we actually learn what loving God and adoring God is like because we put ourselves in that place. So belief is the first two, vision and intention, and I believe practice is intention and means. It's the, the, the blurring of those two things together. So let me get us off a diagram because diagrams are just so static and, and, and not, not always very helpful. Let me use some portraits from our real lives. Let's start with this one, which is a photo I took of myself earlier. Um, this is a metaphor most of us will start to think about as we think about vision and intention and means, because it's all in here, okay? Vision. Most of us know that feeling where it's like, man, I want to be fitter. I want, to, I want my body to look better. My temple is not much of a temple right now, you know? Like, I've got to find a new way of, 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 um, of, of working out and being fit and healthy. And so most of us, every New Year, go through this process, don't we? We kind of go like, it's New Year, new me, um, time to hit the gym, time to start sorting this out. So we have a vision of a healthier version of ourselves. We have an intention, which most of us is the intention of guilt, to be honest. And then we have a means. We start going to the gym. We start changing the way we eat. We start watching our inputs. We start, we start exercising for our outputs. We start actually um, taking this stuff seriously. And what happens is we outwork those three stages, vision and intention and means. I mean, um, the other thing that's often um, important is some people sometimes, they have to start working out and being healthier because of a health scare. That's one heck of an intention, is when it's like you have to change the way you're living because if you don't, you're going to be dying. You know, that's a big intention for some people. Um, sometimes an intention is, um, I'm going to be a bridesmaid in April, and I've got to look super fly, you know? Like, that, whatever the intention is, it motivates us towards our means. But I don't think that this is a very helpful metaphor for what I'm talking about today. The reason being is because that metaphor there is often a reactive picture. It's a picture that we do when we're like, oh, I've just got to change some stuff. Oh, I'm sick of how I look, or whatever it is. That is not the metaphor I want us to think about today as we think about practice. I want us to think about a slightly different metaphor. And that's the, metaf the metaphor of um, medical workers, doctors and nurses, people who have given their lives to a vision and an intention of practicing medicine. I love that they're called practices. I, I love that they practice their medicine. Doctors practice medicine. Nurses practice nursing. It's not that they've got the degree and off they go and it's a career. They actually keep practicing this thing every day 
for the rest of their lives. They have a vocation that they've stepped into, a vision of what they could do with their hands as they care for people, as they, as they um, look after their common man, as they, as they pr- um, provide ways of, um, of people who need help getting help. And they, they uh, spend their day practicing that vision and that intention, outworking it in their lives. This is the practice that I think we should perhaps try and think about here when we think about practicing as a Christian. Most of us think of practicing like it's a gym. We think, quick, I've got to build some muscle. Let's get into the gym. Let's hit some reps. I, I, I need to get this thing going. But actually, could I invite you to a different picture, the picture of the medical practitioner, the one who has given their life to the slow build-up, the slow work of daily practicing this new thing that they've centered their life around. And this is very Jesus-like. So Jesus gathered some, some people around him, and he, uh, he, they were his disciples, is what the, the scriptures call them. They were disciples because they were following their rabbi. They were having their life transformed into the one that they were following. And they follow the same thing. This vim idea comes through with Jesus. And I want you just to take the idea of Peter for a moment. If you know your Bible well enough, you'll know who Peter was. Peter's one of the disciples. Peter's one of the main disciples that features quite heavily in the the gospel narratives. And I want you to think about where it starts. So Peter's a fisherman and he's fishing and Jesus calls him and says, come follow me. And so Peter steps over his nets, leaves his fishing business and starts following Jesus. But I actually don't know if that's when Jesus, I don't know if that's when Peter starts believing in Jesus. Because if we keep reading the Gospels, and especially if you read the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark's actually been written in a way to make you do this. The Gospel of Mark keeps raising up a certain um, question. The question is, who do they say I am? Who do they say I am? Who do they say I am? And so what happens is you have all these little moments, these portraits in the Gospel of Mark at the start where different answers are being put in there. Well, ah, he's the carpenter's son. We know who he is. He's just the carpenter's son. Or there's the moment when Jesus calms the wind and the waves and the storm, and the, 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 the disciples are just like, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man? Who is this man? And so Jesus starts asking them this question. Who do they say I am? Who do you say I am? And there's this moment when Peter says, you're the Christ. You are the Christ, the Messiah. I get it now. I see it. You're not just a man. You're not just the carpenter. You are the Messiah. And that's his moment of, belief. That's this moment of seeing a vision. That's this moment of seeing something new. I'd like to think a lot of us in this room are sitting here and we've had that moment or on our way to that moment, like Jesus is more than just some of those things that I've, I've had of him. He's, he's bigger than those things. He's more than those things. And I'm expanding into that. Welcome to the moment of belief. It's good that you're here. But it continues. It continues because what happens is that near the end of his time with Peter, Jesus asks Peter a very important question. He says, well, Peter, do you love me? Not just who do you say I am, but do you love me? This is the question not just of belief. This is the question of intention. Do you love me, Peter? Peter says, yes, I love you. And he asks him three times, redeeming his failed attempt at standing up for him earlier. And he redeems that with three I love yous. And Jesus issues Peter 
an intention, uh, from, his, from that intention, he issues him a means, something to go and do. He says, well, then feed my sheep. Abide in me and feed my sheep. Go and do this thing. And I think that that is the trajectory that we too are to be on. That is the trajectory that we too are to live. That we're not just to stay at the moment of belief, tick, got it, know who he is, but to actually start stepping further forward and to keep building and growing into a developed uh, disciple of Jesus who not only has a belief, but has a practice and a form of doing some things in the world that matter. This is the trajectory that we must go on. We must not just stay at belief. We must practice that belief. And there's a pretty big argument for that in the book of James. In the book of James, we have this moment here, chapter 2, verse 14 through to 26. It's quite a bit of scripture now I'm going to read for, for a moment here, so just buckle in for a bit. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved, and you say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, Sounds good. You take care of the faith department and I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith. They fit together hand in glove. Do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God, but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful? That's just great. Demons do that. But what good does it do them? Use your heads. Do you suppose for a minute that you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse on your hands? Wasn't our ancestor Abraham made right with God by works when he placed his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar? Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners, that faith expresses itself in works, that the works are works of faith? The full meaning of believe in the scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, includes his action. It's that mesh of believing and acting that got Abraham named God's friend. Is, not evident, is that not evident that a person is made right with God, not by a barren faith, but by faith fruitful in works? The same was with Rahab, the Jericho harlot. Wasn't her action in hiding God's spies and helping them escape that seamless unity of believing and doing what counted with God? The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works, and you get the same thing, a corpse. Big words from James. James is pretty hard-hitting, to be fair. But he's trying to make us see a truth. He's trying to wake us up to a reality that has been running through the scriptures right from the start. And that our life with God is meant to also reflect into some life with others. That our life with God is meant to produce something in the world. That we're not meant to separate those things. That it's meant to be doing something and producing something. Just like in Genesis 12, be blessed by me, God, because 
I am blessing you to be a blessing to the nations. It was meant to go out and reflect to the nations. Like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. There's this unity here where we do not separate these things. In fact, if we separate them, we separate them at our peril. And James is making it clear. Oh man, do not just think that it's a belief, some sort of spiritual experience that you get to sort of lock onto and hold onto and that's it. No, no, no. It is the outworking of your whole life as a result of that belief. It's actually going to change the way you engage in the whole world. And so what I want to talk about just as we finish now is I want to talk about, well, then how do we actually do that? Well, we do it with practices. And practices are the places where that belief starts to become fruitful. Because most of us would say, yeah, I believe in God and I, I, I do my life with him. And, and I believe I'm a praying person. And I believe I'm a worshiper. Like we would say all of these things. But it's our placing ourselves into those spaces that actually makes us those things. It's, our space, it's putting ourselves into those um, areas where we actually practice that. And we actually put our skin in the game. And so the first practices of the church are found in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, 42 through to 47, where the, the early church committed themselves to the practices of gathering together. So doing this. So well done, we have done a practice today. Uh, we prayed together, well done, we've done that today. Uh, learning the scriptures, well done, we've been doing that today, we've been opening up the scriptures. Worship, we've done that today. And taking the Eucharist, we would normally do that today, but it's Advent, so we have our Advent candles out today instead. So we'd normally be doing that as well. But these are practices, regular practices that we have committed ourselves to as a community. And we got that from Acts chapter 2. These are practices that we believe in that are important. So we do them. But it doesn't end there. Practices continue and develop throughout the life of the church. And here's some more. These are not all of them. This is not an exhaustive list. But these are some more. And here's what's important to notice about practices. You can frame them up in two types of mode. Mode number one is that they are abstaining practices. We go without on purpose so that we can learn what it is to strip ourselves away from that thing. And then engagement practices. We press ourselves in towards something so that we can be uncomfortable on purpose and learn what it is to do those things by pressing ourselves in to that space. So here's some of the uh, abstaining practices, for example. Silence, solitude, fasting, Sabbath, secrecy, submission, simplicity. These are just, again, practices of placing ourselves into a humble place, a, a place of stripping away. You know, if you haven't heard of any of those practices before, very simply, silence and solitude is just getting away from the noise of life, for crying out loud. Getting into, I mean, we did that today for about two minutes when Patrick led us through Advent. And I, I know some of you would have been squirming your way through that. Why? Why do we squirm through that? Why is stopping such a, like, it's, it's becoming countercultural because we're ingrained to be effective and busy and consume and keep going and keep making the most of this minute and keep making the most of this day. And it's wired into us so that when we have to stop for two minutes, it's uncomfortable and awkward. Well, this practice pushes us in that direction and makes us give it a go. Fasting, going without food, actually stopping eating and seeking God. Um, Sabbath, taking a day and stopping our work and actually dedicating it to God and delighting in Him. Secrecy, secrecy is simply to do something. And even if it had an amazing result, oh, I led five people to the Lord while working to, walking to work this morning. And you don't tell a single person because you did it just for the glory of God. That's practicing discipline of the, the practice of, of um, secrecy. It's to, it's to actually practice, I'm not going to get the glory. 
I'm going to keep that one away. Um, I'm going to go across the other one, or else I'm going to keep talking about these too much. Um, engagement practices, things like reading our Bibles, things like worship, prayer, friendship. Uh, friendship could also be fellowship, choosing to place ourselves into spaces where we can grow some friendship, some fellowship with people. Personal reflection, taking time to stop and consider. Um, service, giving. And like I said, there's even more. We could put even more practices up there, but that'll do for now. These are spaces where we actually benefit when we put ourselves in there because they grow something in us that if we did not place ourselves there, we would not gain what it does for us. For example, this week, I have three things that have happened by three different types of people who have put themselves into the practice of prayer, as an example. Just as a total example, I have benefited from this because people chose to put themselves there. I had coffee with someone, and they told me, sorry, they asked me how are things going, and so I just talked to them about it. I told them about the year. I told them how things have been going. Well, to be fair, um, no one has written a book on leading a church through a pandemic before. I think we're going okay. Um, I'm a bit tired. I, I'm looking forward to summer. Like I had all the stuff that I talked to him about, and he started to sort of tear up a little bit, and I, I was like, what's, what's going on? And, and he said, oh, man. I just want you to know, not, not to pat myself on the back or anything, but I just want you to know so that you can keep on going. I pray for you every morning. I pray for you. I pray for Gab. I pray for Rob. I pray for Alicia. Every morning, I pray for the four of you as you lead our church. Every morning. I get up early before I go to work. I have a prayer list, and I pray through my prayer list, and you guys are four of the names right at the top. And I was just like, ah, oh, ah, oh, thank you for the commitment of that. Thank you that you do that. And it really humbled me and blew me away. And it made me actually consider, Dan, how are you doing at, pra at practicing that and praying for others? How are you doing at, at making a space where there's the intentionality, there's the list, and there's the, mo the moment in your calendar set aside, as costly as that is, to do those things? And it really got me thinking, because I was sitting on the receiving end of that, as he proceeded to tell me some of the things that he'd been thinking about and praying for us about. Just this week, on Wednesday night, we had our prayer meeting over in Community House. A bunch of us got together and we prayed. We listened to God prophetically. We sought him. We um, prayed for you as our community. We prayed for the future of this church, this multi-gathering church all across the city. And as we did that, we um, found ourselves going on this beautiful journey with Waido Tapu as we heard him speak to us and we, we took those words to our hearts and we prayed them and some of us sort of just sat there and cried away through some of those prayers, to be honest. And I couldn't help but thinking as I drove home, if I hadn't come tonight, I wouldn't have experienced this. Like if I hadn't come to this space and practiced this tonight, I wouldn't have got to do this. And it was suddenly this moment of realizing like when I place myself in the practice, I get the benefit of what that practice is trying to do. And I'm not saying this, please do not hear me sort of heaping this on us as like a guilt trip. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to show us how important this is, is that actually it's not just about a belief, a mental ascent. It is actually about showing up and participating in these things that we then actually benefit from the participation of those things. Lastly, on Thursday morning, I woke up and a person had sent me a message with a prophetic word. And I said, where, where did you get this from? Like, why this? And they said, oh, this morning I was walking, because Thursday morning I walked to work, and I pray. It's my prayer walk morning. 
I've committed Thursday mornings when I walk to work, I pray for our city, I pray for our church, I pray for you, whatever God does. And I thought, wow, that person literally has it in their diary, on their calendar, Thursday morning, bing, I'm walking to work and I'm praying today. I'm practicing this stuff. And I just wanted to share those stories as just quick reflections of just this week of one practice. I could have talked about heaps of them. I could have talked about the friendship practice that's been growing in our midst as people place themselves in spaces of friendship. I could talk about the serving one as people literally serve here at Gratis on a Monday or Wednesday night, have their lives completely turned upside down as they go about that. I could have talked about any of those things, but that's just the ones I grabbed today to simply make the point that we must not just think that believing is enough. Believing is not enough. We have to enact this thing. Again, remember, it is about our growth that I'm talking about here. Believing in God is the starting point and the gateway to life with God. But we have to enact this to grow and to benefit into this thing of having a life growing up in God, robust in love. Which brings me to the last moment for this morning. And that is the words of Jesus. We've used these words many times already in this series, and I just want to just use them one more time as we finish up and we're landing here. Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way and take up your cross and follow me. Now, these are gutsy words, and we've talked about these words a few times over the last few weeks. But the reality that I want to present this morning, the last thought of this series is this, yes, we actually have to pick something up. We actually have to pick up something. It will be tactile. It will cost us. It will not be convenient. And that, that is what picking up a cross feels like. It'll feel like death. It'll feel like we're dying as we might do some of these things. But actually, these are the gateways to life because Jesus says, this is my way. And to do it, this is the entrance. The entrance is we have to start to pick up this cross. And so what is that cross? I, I think your cross will be something of an ordinary, everyday life. I do not think that it has to be the most big, spectacular type thing that you might have read about in some super evangelist's book. That's not what I'm talking about. I think your cross will be an everyday, regular thing, small and maybe even insignificant, but it will be something that you have to pick up in the way of Jesus, to access the way of Jesus. And so to finish, I just want to simply invite us to stand and I want to lead us through a moment of listening to the Spirit of God together. And so, Ants, why don't you come? And why don't we all, it too, why don't we stand? And we're just going to pray for a few moments to finish our gathering today. Again, this is, this is not, I just have to keep disclaiming this because I know how this can be heard. It sounds like I'm beating you all up, but I'm not. What I'm trying to say is that if we are really serious about growing in this life with God, it will take mahi. We've been sold a vision where it doesn't. Just believe. And that's just not the full story. It's not. The great saints of the world, the great martyrs of the world, the great people that we look up to with wisdom and um, knowledge in their lives have all got this common story. The common story is they have been well formed, deeply formed. And these are the pathways for deep formation. We put our way aside, we get on the way of Jesus and we start to feel what that's like with all these small actions, these small practices that daily build a new person into our being. And so Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to come and do your work. 
we receive your gift to us today by simply believing. We just turn our attention to who you are and say, yes, Lord, you are our God. You are the one who has risen from the grave and ascended to the place on high, seated next to your Father in heaven, holding things together, holding creation together. You are the God who's making all things new. And Lord, today we ask you'd make us a little more new. Today, shape in us something new, we pray. And so as we finish, I just want you to use your imagination for a moment. And I just want you to think about the week you've just lived. All that you did. Just let it come to mind just for a a few seconds. What did you do this week? What did you do? Who did you see? What did your hands work on? What meals did you make? What sports did you play? What places did you go? Where did you drive? What inputs? What outputs? How was your week? How was the way of your life last week? week that is yet to come. Jesus stands at the gateway and he says, come and follow me. And then he says, who do you say I am? And then he says, do you love me? And then he says, well, abide in me. Feed my sheep. He says the way to come and do all of those things is that we have to lay our way down and pick up a cross and follow Him. And so just quickly think through the week ahead and to the best of your ability with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, what are some crosses that you need to pick up this week? some practices that you need to start to do? What are some spaces you need to place yourself in? disciples we've gathered and crowded around this morning this 11 a.m. gathering right off the back of another bunch of people at a 9 a.m. gathering we've we've come together to gather around you our Jesus our Christ and we ask that you'd build our lives build them into something beautiful build them into something resolute build them into something that would go the long distance build us into your likeness 
And we acknowledge that to do that, we are going to have to place ourselves into some practices and some situations. So Lord, may we get comfortable with being uncomfortable. May we place ourselves into those things. Lord, may we get better at counting the cost of our diaries and our time. May we get better at stepping into those spaces where we need to grow. We know that you're with us. We know that you go with us in this, Lord. It is your work and your fruit that we're after. So Holy Spirit, come and grow in us the things that you want to grow in us as we do this. Because we long to become the kinds of people that would be resilient disciples in this world and in this moment. For yours is the power, yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory forever and ever and ever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we all sit together.